Hello everyone. Welcome back to the STEM Speak podcast and I am your host Sahana. Today let's talk about how well our education can serve us as long as we are ready to look beyond the traditional routes. My guest is someone who has traveled the path less taken. Dr. Swati Subodh is a scientist with decade-long experience in genomics research in an academic setting. She's a social entrepreneur who works on personalized healthcare models leveraging technology and digital platforms. She's also a columnist for various online and print publications. My chance encounter with Swati was on a scientific writing assignment when she was my editor. I got talking to her and her story is truly intriguing. For those of us who think the only road to a successful career after PhD is to go down the postdoc tenure route, this scientist entrepreneur has a great message. We chat about her move from academia to her startup, the 1 million for 1 billion project that she co-founded, the need for PhDs to look beyond academic silos to contribute to the society, how the term alternate academic alt ac needs to go and more. If you're in a bit of an existential crisis in your PhD, which I think is about 90% of us, then this is the right thing for you to pep you up. In case you're a budding entrepreneur, Swati's engaging story of applying skills and her expertise at the grassroots leading to a sustainable entrepreneurship model is a good case study. In case you're neither of those, just enjoy the success story of how the 1M1B project is helping reshape the healthcare model in many Indian villages. So listen on. So hi Swati welcome to the STEM Speak podcast and let's begin with um what's your uh, background I know you have a PhD but I don't know what subject what you did during your PhD so let's just begin with that Yeah hi Sahana and uh, great to be here thank you for uh, inviting and um, it's a great opportunity i think to talk uh, about the work that i do mm-hmm. uh, as you said yes i am a PhD um i did my uh, psc from the all india institute of medical sciences mm-hmm. um with uh, professor m kehan mm-hmm. it was in uh, infectious disease biology okay so i that was the first time i was actually working in a clinic with a clinician mm-hmm. and also doing research at the back end right so i got to see both sides of research mm. the clinical side as well as the lab side right and um after that i joined uh, CSIR mm-hmm. as uh, uh, as a scientist i was uh, first with the uh, their um, ppp initiative mm-hmm. where i was heading a uh, microarray division and also uh, had uh, projects as a young investigator from many um, organizations and okay. uh, government bodies mm-hmm. and I, i was leading my own research team that is where i started focusing more on uh, uh, genomics mm-hmm. so besides uh, the focus on infectious disease uh, i started focusing on genomics also right so my initial work at aims was on rotavirus mm-hmm. that was uh, so part of my phd work was um, on the vaccine that you now see on in the shelf right uh, which is part of the immunization program mm-hmm. so um, i i can say i had a very small part to play in that vaccine Uh, as part of my phd mm-hmm. uh in csir i i led my um, team and uh, that was a project on hepatitis mm-hmm. um that i was working on and genomic signatures of hepatitis uh in specific right and after that uh, as part of the open source drug discovery unit um 
uh, the genomics further you know focused to pharmacogenomics right and and there i was looking at how um the genome of an individual um um you know kind of leads to the response of a particular drug or the non response of a drug mm. or in severe cases even adverse response right. to a drug mm. so pharmacogenomics was something that i was doing functional genomics was something that i was doing right and uh, after that um um yeah things went on so this was my the lab side and uh, the research side of my career okay and now i think you're uh, totally into social entrepreneurship so you've had quite a long career um with your research right i i just thought you did your phd and then jumped to this but it looks like you worked as a pi and handled projects so how was the transition from being an academic to now being an industry person so uh, i i i would say that my journey out of the lab started uh when i entered the lab oh okay <laughs> so uh, so when i was uh, so masters you know during masters you get uh, exposure which is very limited mm-hmm. in the lab yeah and it is about the theory development and the curriculum projects that uh, you know the curriculum uh, practicals that you do right but when i joined uh, phd it was as i said it was on a, in a hospital uh, setting mm. and as a non medico i was not prepared to see um, the clinical side of what research leads to you know because right. i was seeing i was in the department of pediatrics i was working on rotavirus that mm. is uh, a virus that infects under 5 age group and causes high mortality in right. uh, the under 5 age group in india mm. and in developing countries so i was in the department of pediatrics and uh, my lab was right in the middle of uh, the clinics mm. and i got to see first hand uh, where research was directed to you know right so um, so uh, in the lab where where i was characterizing genes and sequencing genes and identifying uh, you know with type and uh, so forth outside mm. i could see where this was pointed to yeah and as a non medical i was not ready to see quite a lot of things that i saw saw during the 5 years mm. and that was actually my journey out of the lab where i i started seeking more meaning to what the research should actually lead mm. it should not just be restricted to papers and patents it should actually translate on ground hmm. to and, um the government spends uh you know in government and industry spends a considerable considerable amount on research yes and it would be not uh, i would say not fair to the people if it was just restricted to publications and patents it had to see you know something that was beyond that hmm. and actually applied on so that is that was actually my uh, you know thought process which was leading me out of the lab anyway when i started my phd mm-hmm. uh the same thing went on um when i joined csir hmm. um uh as a uh, as a division head for micro array and also started leading my own projects i started working with a lot of clinicians um uh um, first because aims was you know a, a, a safe place for me to start i hmm. started working with a lot of clinicians in aims itself from my dbt dst young scientist branch hmm. and um and i was fortunate to meet some very uh, you know cl- uh, passionate clinicians who who told me swati just at the start of your career uh, you know you would be looking for certain you know uh, mileage in terms of patents and publications out of this project mm. and maybe a few phd students but uh, let me tell tell you that we are not interested in any of that 
it's okay if you go publish for us but please do something for our patients right and so that this was um, the head of department of gastroenterology that i was talking to because i was i uh, i started working on hepatitis hmm. and i started directly working with uh, the hod of uh, the gastroenterology department at aims and that's what he said he said do something for my patients i really do not bother much about the other things you you might not even put my name in it that's mm. okay mm. but give me something that i can use for my patients so you know it just added to some a thought process that was already going on in my mind right it just catalyzed it mm. that we have to make you know something productive which is can be taken to the ground and faster not okay. in 20 years time but in a in a shorter window mm. so my why my work invariably you know started uh, looking more like uh, translational as you call it now yeah uh translational research more than basic research i was into ba- <clears throat> sorry i was into basic research but it kind of started progressing more much faster into the translational domain mm. and um that carried on when i also joined um uh, the, my position within csir in in the osdd unit mm. uh and that is a open source drug discovery unit so the focus was on tuberculosis and finding the you know ways and means of accelerating what is already done mm. you know so there are many things which are there yeah but they but it exists in silos right a, you know a polymer chemist will not talk to a biologist a mm. biologist might not have a everyday interaction with a uh, with a organic chemist or a physical mm. chemist mm. or a bioinformatician you know so it it uh, was a platform where people who have done things in a particular disease and this in this case it was tuberculosis mm. to actually bring it in onto a common platform and say hey what you've done is good enough like let us try to put this in the pipeline mm. rather than you know keep evolving and uh, uh, doing more things in in our respective verticals correct so that is uh, that was a, i would say a very good introduction for me in the way things can be taken on ground okay so with a set of taking things on ground this also provided a ways and means of how it can be done hmm. and although i uh, was uh, doing the pharmacogenomic side of it because i had uh, developed i won't say expertise but fair uh, knowledge in the field of uh, genomics hmm. uh, so pharmacogenomics was actually telling uh, you know in a way that um, how can the genes dictate a person's response hmm. and if this response can be um, used for uh, a personalized treatment hmm. rather than a one size uh, one That's size right. it's all kind of an approach so here instead of giving the person a treatment and then waiting for the person to respond not respond or response adversely and then go and change the treatment and there's a fair amount of uh, you know suffering of the for the patient right. in the meantime and you've lost very precious time in the meantime can we use this uh, the pharmacogenomics approach to customize treatment for people based on their gene uh, me- genetic makeup hmm. one is accelerating things within the vertical vertical hmm. different verticals that you're working but also with that open source platform we were working with different people from different fields right and to plug it together in a common pipeline you know right. so the entire process itself is accelerated correct so besides the clinical side of genomics that i started de- dealing in it also involved um, it was a big learning experience for me on mm. how to bring things together on a platform so that things move 
move faster and that was my biggest learning in the uh, in OST. Hmm. So, and to and uh, to get back to what you were asking this was this was the final step uh, before i actually stepped out of a formal lab environment hmm. i don't call myself a uh, you know in lab scientist anymore hmm. i'm more, my lab has expanded and i'm more of uh, an open lab scientist right yeah and with with added uh, added features as uh, public health Mm. Uh, added to uh, how I see clinics and how I see clinical science now. Right. So, if I understand correctly, you currently work for the one million one billion initiative, right? So, do you still um, run your own lab? So, as I said, now I don't have a structured uh, closed door lab. Mm-hmm. My lab is more open. It's an open door and right. it does not have a physical structure. Okay. I work with a lot of um, innovators. I work with a lot of uh, um, communities. Okay. Because my, my, uh, my focus has been on um, in clinical research. And mm. clinical research in India makes sense only if it is even beyond the hospitals, frankly. Right. It, is, it is taken to the communities because most of the people in India do not have a formal uh, public health or a clinical structure to go to. Hmm. So, um, so besides the clinicians that I work with, the innovators that I work with, uh, I've also worked with a lot of communities. And um, uh, One Million for One Billion Foundation is something that um, uh, was co-founded in 2015 when, uh, 2014, hmm. uh, as I was uh, stepping out of my formal uh, in-lab in career. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is what we co-found, I co-founded along with uh, Manav in 2014. I actually got on board in 2015 for that okay. because there were additional things that Manav had already initiated by that time. Hmm. And uh, healthcare, as, a, as because of my background, that is what um, I kind of lead in one m one But the but the scope of the organization is much broader. Hmm. Uh, just to explain uh, the name one m one b because many people find it very amusing yeah. and um, it, this is often kind of even misspelled or mispronounced uh, we have you know all got all combinations of one m one b that can exist okay. today uh, i'm not going to say it here because it will add to the confusion yes. <laughs> but just to but to, just to kind of um, uh, say what it means. It mm. means one million for one billion. Mm-hmm. That is uh, empowering a million to impact a billion. Right. So uh, the foundation works uh, or hopes to work uh, with one million people who would further impact the lives of one billion people. Mm. And for that, we are working across uh, different countries. Right. So uh, I had a look at the website, and it looks like you're working in Vietnam and in India, of course, and in the US. And other places, right? Yes. So we have different um, programs that we run in different countries. Um, one, uh, India is a stronghold for us for very obvious reasons. We started here. Mm. Um, both the co-founders, uh, we are based out of India, mm. and that is where majority of uh, you know the projects are. Mm. Uh, but we also have we are registered. Uh, so we have uh, we are a five hundred one c three registered in the US, mm. and one m one b is also um, an ECOSOC member. That is, it has consultative status in ECOSOC in the United Nations. Mm. So the projects that we do, uh, um, we can consult as and when required 
for policy making or decision making at the UN. Yeah. Uh, so we can give the learnings from our projects in different countries and share it, share the learnings uh, in the EcoSoft platform uh, at the United Nations. Yeah. We are also, um, I you know, associated with the UNDPI, that is a communication division. Mm. So uh, we do kind of um, send out uh, project learnings on a um, time, you know, at uh, periodic intervals. Right. Uh, in US, it is, uh, and in India, we run projects with a lot of uh, youth mm. in the country. Uh, in India, it is youth and uh, women right. uh, from the surf communities. In uh, in the Caribbean, again, it is uh, with the youth. Mm-hmm. Vietnam, um, uh, the focus is that we work with a lot of youth and women in all countries. Uh, in Vietnam, we are working uh, with, uh, with an orphanage. Our mm. country partner is an uh, is someone who's uh, dealing a huge uh, who's running a huge orphanage and there the problem is very different you know it's okay. uh, once they are 18 they are supposed to leave the orphanage okay. and they do not have a clear project uh, you know trajectory of how it goes mm. they are totally and um, um, the boys are at the risk of being recruited by the mafia and the girls are at the risk of being trafficked mm. um, so we are kind of working with them so that they have a career project uh, you know trajectory beyond the 18 years when they are supposed to be right we are also working in singapore mm-hmm. uh, so uh, yeah uh, to answer your question there are different programs we are not running uh, exactly the same programs in all the countries mm. depending on the need depending on the availability and def- depending on the partnerships we are we are working on very different projects in the different countries that we are working right uh, so when you explain the 1 million for 1 billion i can think of like you you, sh- you may have some sort of mentorship programs and some sort of uh, public engagement because you said public health is a big um, uh, factor that you work on. So what is like a typical project, let's say in India, if you focus on India, what, what are some of the typical projects that you've worked on? So um, we have worked uh, on different projects and this is both in terms of uh, healthcare as well as non-healthcare. Mm. So I'll elaborate on um, the healthcare project. Mm. Uh, is um, in Andhra Pradesh as part of the Smart Village program mm. uh, with the Chandrababu Naidu government, mm. and uh, in Uttarakhand as um, a partnership with uh, a US entity. We ran programs um, in the villages, mm. and these are two different geographies, very different challenges, yes. very different communities. Uh, but access to good healthcare is one thing that is, you know, unifying. Hmm. Uh, neither of the two uh, places had uh, that level of uh, healthcare service penetration. Okay. So we, um, so here, um, just by means of developing a technology platform hmm. in terms of telehealth. So telehealth is something that has been in existence, but you know, there, uh, it has a scope of doing much more than what it is currently accomplishing. Right. But here. Uh, just by uh, you know partnering with technology partners to get the adequate platforms available at the place, mm. we work with a lot of hospitals to get the doctors and um, you know twenty four seven consultation available. Okay, we uh, we engage a lot of lot of local youth to run these uh, centers. Mm. So train them to run the center so that it's not just a service mm. to the community, but also it engages the community to their to do their own work. Correct. And it becomes a source of employment for them as well. Mm. The data that is collected is uh, very useful in understanding the disease map of the country. 
right. and it becomes useful for the epidemiologists. Hmm. The the samples that are collected and analyzed become useful information for uh, biochemists to understand uh, the different biochemical factors in the community. Right. And uh, so there are different uh, aspects to it which are integrated. Mm-hmm social, scientific and clinical when uh, we engage in such uh, programs. Right. Another, so this, is, this was the rural side of it. Uh, in the city side program, uh, for example, in uh, artificial intelligence, uh, so we're running a school program for children, both in urban mm-hmm. as well as rural settings on artificial intelligence and really making it so simple that you don't need it, you don't need to know coding mm. or programming or mathematical skills to learn uh, AI and the scope of it. Okay. And then giving them projects to see how it, it is useful in healthcare, mm. for example. Mm. How it is useful in, uh, you know, now climate change is a big thing um, that the young need to be educated you know, right. sooner than later. Mm. So also enabling them to see how they can make projects for the, the climate change aspect, what in terms of monitoring as well as in terms of reduction. Right. So, uh, and with bearings on health. So we are working with clinicians who are mentoring. We have uh, people from the social sector who are mentors with us. We have people from the corporate who mentor uh, with us. Wow. So one, we have a core uh, mentor team Mm. in one M one B who are uh, who are the you know um, um, a constant factor with the students. Of whom we are working with, mm. but we have a lot of uh, corporate, social work, uh, social sector, clinical, and scientist mentors who we bring in uh, as per the projects that we are running. Right. Um, so, how do you come up with these projects? They all seem so diverse and so fascinating. Uh, so, what's the usual pipeline for a project? So, uh, first, uh, so. We, we encourage students to come up with their ideas. Okay. Uh, we have uh, a huge, uh, you know, box of ideas with us. And uh, we uh, give that to the students who are engaging with us for a little longer, mm. uh, like six months to a year. Mm-hmm. And they do these projects from the technical side to the social side. Right. So not developing projects, but also see how it is implemented and get feedback from on. Right. From on. So these are the uh, fellows or interns who work with us or the students who work with us for a longer time. We give them very clear-cut projects to work on. Mm. But for short uh, for short periods, we want to develop a, develop thinkers, mm. not just doers. Right. Right. So doing is definitely important because ideating in uh, in isolation and not taking it forward is really no good. Mm. But on this on the other side, we don't want people to just keep implementing something, some other person's ideas. We want them to also think because that is what uh, our, com- our world needs more, you know, right. for challenges that uh, the world faces in terms of healthcare, in terms of environment. We need original thinking. Mm. So to develop that, we, we first run them through a curriculum mm. in which they are taught how to think and how to ideate. Right. Then come up with ideas that they would like to take forward as projects. Okay. So when you said diverse projects, that mm. is why they are so diverse because they come from very different people. They uh, they come from different people from different uh, settings. Mm. So the things that they see as a problem is also very different. Correct. So the projects proposed by a city uh, 
uh, you know youth mm. is very different from the project suggested by a youth who's staying uh, in rural villages because their problems are different and it's better to ask those people what is required rather than assuming what their problem is right and uh, if you are training them to identify not just they do already know the problem if you identifying or creating a structure in which they can think create a framework and also take it forward i think th- they are the best people to do it right because they also kind of emotionally and at a day to day level engaged with the problem you know yes so it works both ways right. we have a lot of projects that we do uh, with corporates um uh like the ai curriculum and uh, also the telehealth as i said we were we were working with different entities mm. so there are certain projects that we are you know um kind of continuing with in different geographies and that uh, that is what gives continuity to the project mm. but the short term projects are more uh, uh you know um focused on developing thinking and then taking it on um and couple of them go forward couple of them are restricted to the ten, uh, to the duration of uh, the curriculum right so how do you identify uh, these people who um, involve uh, themselves in these projects uh, is it like they apply with their um, i'm i'm guessing these are either undergrads or maybe if if it's a high school program or something so how do you identify these uh, youth so um one we as i said we work with a lot of country partners hmm. so the country, because uh, to achieve the mandate of 1m1b which is 1 million for 1 billion it is very difficult for one single organization to do it hmm. across different geographies we cannot know what is there to know about every place that we work right so we have to rely on the knowledge of many people who are work have been working in this uh, in this uh, you know uh, domain for a much longer time than mm. we have so one we work on uh, partnerships for for to identify mm. what the problems are and also through uh, a you know collective network look out for such individuals who would be interested to be a part of it okay uh, many times uh, uh, through our partnership network um, the the people are identified already sometimes we do uh, kind of put out a call and people apply for it so but, as i said there is a short term and a long term engagement model in one mnb so depending on how uh, what they are doing in life like if it's a high school kid obviously they cannot have a long term project it has to be a short term project right but we have many you know graduates who or even professionals who are uh, who want to take that break and just do something meaningful and kind of realign what they want to do in life you right. know so they do a longer project with us which is could be 6 months could be one year could be more than one year mm. uh and that uh, so that is the way it is different many many apply to us directly many times we put out a call and they apply to it right. and uh, the third way is uh, the through our network uh, uh, partner network we these people already identified who have been engaged and want to be more gainfully engaged in some capacity right so you said uh, the project started uh, in 2015 right 2014 so yeah. um what do you think of the startup landscape in india especially in biotech or in healthcare um how easy is it to break through or what are the challenges so uh one thing that we came across 
biotech startups mm-hmm. uh, in the in the uh, in the Uttarakhand projects as well as in the Andhra Pradesh uh, projects that we were doing the smart city the smart village sorry mm-hmm. the smart village uh, project that we were doing uh, in that uh, one um, big thing that came across and which I would say is uh, kind of common to not just the biotech startups but also in other domains. Uh, but I we will we will take the example of uh, you know biotech specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were working um, with uh, diagnostic uh, startups mm. who are developing diagnostic uh, platforms for uh, different diseases. Um, we have a lot of choice now because many people are looking at uh, uh, you know the the how the uh, the work is translated on ground. So mm. we have a boom of uh, biotechnology startups. From industrial biotechnology to diagnostics, right. uh, and also now a lot, a lot of uh, genomic, uh, you know, genomics and those startups are also coming. So yeah. all come under the, you know, window of uh, the biotech startups. So we were dealing di- uh, with more of uh, the, the diagnostics uh, startups, mm. and what we realized is uh, that you know the technical expertise is there, mm. the the, the um, vision of how this technology or whatever technology they have been working on can be taken to on ground mm. but because of the disconnect on how it is actually used on ground or implemented on ground mm. uh, we saw that gap uh, right. where uh, you know as we were saying that developed in silos not actually being thought through from the point of implementation right so then we saw that many of the technologies uh, were not viable mm. when taken to scale so they were like uh, amazing technologies and we we were really kind of uh, trying to work it out because they were so amazing. Many of them were like, uh, there was a very passionate innovator behind the technologies that we were trying to take forward. But because of the disconnect, it was not made in a way that it could be taken to scale. Right. And that is what the feedback we gave them that do this, 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 this. And that is really taking them back to the drawing board. Right. And so one thing uh, that... Um, my, our observation was that if the end use or the and the end user mm. of uh, whatever solution is being developed, and I said this is not just specific for biotechnology right. startups, but also for them, is to keep the focus on the end use and the end user of your technology or your product or your mm. service mm. and work backwards mm. rather than developing something and then seeing how it integrates. Mm. It should be backwards rather than in a forward manner. So, um, but the good part is that we have so many choices now, we are like uh, looking from the, you know, from the angle of uh, one and one day, hmm. we have so many choices to choose because there's so many good innovations now coming up and so many uh, academic uh, professors and uh, people just out of PhD starting their own uh, companies mm-hmm. that it is really good to see fresh ideas, very different uh, technologies and services being developed around for the same problems that have been there. Right. So look, from that lens, um, it's booming. Mm-hmm. And because of the government initiative, both in terms of the startup stand-up uh, initiative by the government of India, and also the uh, the, uh, the level of grant and support being uh, rolled out to the, uh, to the startups, and having specific, you know, startups for biotechnology, like the one at the Bangalore and Seacamp, hmm. you know, it, re- it it is accelerating ideas to action. Yes. And that is uh, so good to see. Right. 
So um, when you work in a place like India, do you have social challenges? Like when you work with communities and people and you're trying to bring in technology, uh, like I can think of something like um, I used to work in a diagnostic startup as well. And when people used to uh, see their genomics result, it they would just draw the you know most negative conclusions or it's it's difficult for people to understand what it actually means and then absorb it so do you have any uh, instances of you know challenges that bringing your project to the social context is slightly tricky yeah so that was my learning in the very six uh, first six months mm. you know that uh, the technology or the scientific aspect of um, the work, uh, uh, be it in healthcare or otherwise, only I would say 10% mm. of being clinical or technical, the rest of the 90% is social. Right. Then when you have to take it to the ground and we ended up uh, spending more time on social acclimatization mm. and adoption mm. rather than actually tweaking the technology um, from a more technical or a scientific angle to make it more suitable. Correct. Because um, because it is a different uh, you know ball game altogether uh, when you're taking any solution to the market. Because um, frankly, people are comfortable. Hmm. Right. In if uh, there is suffering, there is also a level of uh, acceptance hmm. to the suffering. And it is difficult, some, and that is their probably uh, way of coping with hmm. uh, adversities, adverse, adversities in life. You know, they try to be okay with it. Sometimes you have to first tell them it's not okay and this is how you can make it uh, better. Yeah. But getting people out of that, you know, psychology of not seeking health uh, healthcare behavior. So there is a huge lack of healthcare-seeking behavior in right. the community. Right. Many times it is that uh, they will manage by themselves. Mm. The the home, um, you know, the home remedies and all those yeah. uh, take up a lot of uh, the space and they hope for the best. Mm. Uh, also, in the social context, there are a lot of uh, uh, what we call as the RMPs. The, uh, these are the, um, you know, uncertified medical products. Uh, professionals mm. who are there in the community mm. and who enjoy a lot of um, faith from the community. Mm. Yes, so if those people say that this is not good, mm. the community takes their word for it. Right. And, and they would be willing to do it for uh, 20 rupees mm. and if, uh, you know, a specialist consultation takes 30 rupees, mm. they would say no to it and go to an uncertified person who's there from their own community accessible 24-7 why would you want to do something different you know right so acceptance is a big big thing that we saw that um, that is something that we cannot take for granted Mm. Uh, if we are going to go with something it will be accepted with open arms Mm. that was the first learning with the in the very first six months that I stepped out of the lab and that brings the challenges to a social level Mm. not so technical or scientific level and yeah so and there are different ways that uh, we went around dealing with that mm. challenge and maybe i'm thinking seeking the women out to be more active and uh, vocal about their health issues might also be a challenge right because women kind of tend to uh, you know suppress their 
uh, needs or uh, problems when it comes to health they want to like not take up too much attention in, especially in a big family or in a rural setting yeah that was another thing um and uh, so we started by engaging women mm. when i was saying that we engage with a lot of youth and women in healthcare specifically because uh, obviously uh, you know uh, different age groups come to the clinic yeah and having just uh, young people working at the clinic might not give them that level of confidence mm. you know so uh, we engaged uh, the young in uh, ex- you know getting the centers running mm. but we made we engaged with the community women mm. in actually the qualitative side of it right training them and bringing them on board for uh, for running uh, the technical side of it hmm. so if there is a woman from the community saying that hey get yourself checked during pregnancy hmm. uh, they are more the other people other women in the community are more likely to listen right and once they come to the center then the uh, then the uh, you know the doctors available online can hmm. take right so so getting people to the center and uh, you know making them come again yeah. if required was something that required us to engage the women of the community more right so as i said the the social angles of uh, healthcare implementation were far more than it comes to getting some technology right so in future what are the social issues especially in india that you would want to focus on or make more projects about so uh, in the context of uh, you know developing country like india mm-hmm. um, and a fast developing com- country like india uh, healthcare will always be one of our focus mm. because there is a lot of scope of doing things there mm. but with the de- uh, you know developing ecosystem uh, the startup ecosystem mm. we are looking at uh, the startup models and creating more micro entrepreneurs mm. by for sustainability of these actions hmm. so uh, our mandate is not to be everywhere every time hmm. our mandate is and identifying the need getting the process in place finding a local person hmm. to take it up take ownership and then we take a back hmm. back seat hmm. and let it be run by the person from the community and that is what our sustainability model is right No, we don't want to be, uh, you know, ir- irreplaceable, mm-hmm. so as to say, because one, it limits the kind of geographies that we can reach out to from mm-hmm. a limited uh, team size, right? But also limits the sustainability of uh, the projects that we have implemented in the places that we have. So get, you know, transferring the ownership to local uh, uh, community, mm-hmm. the, uh, community workers, community professionals. is our sustainability plans so, and we uh, we derive a lot of uh, initial you know we we try to leverage a lot from the startup ecosystem and the booming um, uh, you know initiatives that are being rolled out in mm-hmm. terms of uh, be the pradhan mantri mudra yojana or the msme initiatives for microfinancing these uh, um, uh, from these micro entrepreneurs on down mm-hmm. and from uh, the technology wave the startup wave that brings in a lot of choices trying to get them more on ground last mile hmm. access hmm. Um, so healthcare will always be our thing because that's universal and there's a lot of scope of doing a uh, lot many things hmm. the other aspects is uh, uh, i specifically talking about india 
it's a agriculture based society mm. where 40% people uh, you know 40% of the population is engaged in it but there's only about 17 to 18% contribution to the gdp mm. right and uh, that does not make it viable for these 40% people to even get engaged and mm. they are fast moving out to less you know moving to the cities and taking up uh, less uh, engaging jobs mm. um, and uh, staying in a very uh, iffy kind of an environment mm. in the cities uh, so we a- agriculture on the other side we are working with a lot of technology companies iot companies mm. artificial intelligence companies uh, who bring in a lot of value uh, for the farmers okay make it a look uh, so some empowering something that is already being done by them okay uh, so that is another aspect mm-hmm. uh, in terms of health mental health hmm. is another aspect that uh, we are developing a lot of initiatives on because this is not just specific to india hmm. we support that it is also applicable in you know developed countries that hmm. mental health issues and or the lack of uh, you know addressal of such issues hmm. is a big problem so uh, both in terms of tying up social aspects as well as technology to be able to create just sustainable initiatives in that respect is another focus point right great um, yeah. so um, most of our target audience is actually grad students um, you know somebody starting the journey or um, somebody kind of uh, thinking about graduating and alternate careers so if you go back to your phd training or your um, work as a scientist what kind of uh, skills do you think help you in your current um, job technical okay, non technical so, soft whatever yeah so first let me just uh, kind of uh, put my view across to the term that you just used uh, alternative career mm-hmm. i don't i don't think this is an alternative career right because that is the way uh, we have so far looked at uh, phd's mm. you know and academic careers is supposed to be mainstream and a non academic career is supposed to be alternate mm. so first i would like to just kind of course uh, correct on that something which is taken out of the academy should not be taken as alternative mm. it is it is one of the many ways that the phd's can contribute uh, not just uh, from uh, academic point of view but from also the, you know taking it outside an implementation point of view mm. also and just uh, boxing uh, phd's or grad students uh, to uh, be you know tenure tracks or uh, professors or scientists and you seeing there's less of it now yes. how many scientists how many academic positions can you really have depend uh, you know versus how many phd students actually right. come out of uh, the universities true so i think there is one thing that needs to be corrected is the other forms be mm. taken as equal and not as an alternative because that is a bias that we create and that is why the people continue to struggle mm. you know uh, to get a uh, academic position many years you know one postdoc after the other and so forth if they are gainfully engaged in another aspect of how they you know knowledge can be used mm. it's so much better for them uh, in terms of a career mm. as as well as their contribution to both academia as well as uh, in the communities right uh, in the industries mm. so i think if we just get over that terminology there's a lot of a big world out there you know right. so that is one thing that i would like to point to uh, coming to your question of uh, how uh, the phd shapes 
or are you asking specifically for me or are you asking generally how um, it helps both whatever you choose to answer okay so one thing is there that while doing the phd there's a lot of uh, and that is from personal experience the uh, we get very patient because most often than not the results do not come right and uh, one of my mentor told me that uh, you know uh, in the first two years of my phd when i was really disheartened that the, uh, the results are not showing up he said if the results showed up the phd would take one year for you to do why do you need five years because uh, the same work most often than not does not yield the results mm. and uh, you have to go back to the drawing board see where you went wrong what could be done differently mm. uh, you read up a lot more and uh, find out the different ways that you can do it and or you start thinking for yourself that how to tweak the current protocols to make it uh, work in your favor so one is patience which i think um, in the work that i'm doing right now it requires because um, it it is a long trajectory even outside of the lab to get things working right and if you're not patient then you get disheartened hmm. our failures overpower you true now uh, being a phd student i i think we learn not to let the failures overpower us yeah. because when we're dealing with failures 80% of the time and 20% is the time when actually results come and yeah. we get something positive in terms of papers presentations and patents uh we get used to the failures and which i think is a very good thing people take failures as a negative hmm. i see failures as a big learning experience right people who do not um, you know undergo failures uh take failures very very badly and we see you know we read in the newspapers our failures are taken by youth all over the world mm. so i think getting used to and be okay with failures and seeing it as a stepping stone rather than a big uh, big downslide in life is something that i think phd students get accustomed to during the five years right strategic thinking is another thing strategic thinking because uh, when you are evaluating and cross evaluating why things did not work mm. uh is very important so you're not just uh, relying on your guide to tell you what things to do so you're not you're more than a pair of hands true you 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 try to think and work things out on your own be it cross referencing to other people's work through publication mm. but also making your own hacks and tweaks to see how the current thing can be made better mm. so if you're getting a protein in your case i'm just taking an example how do you get more of it right so you tweak the protocol to get more uh, more protein in uh, less cycles you know, right. less uh, you don't have to inoculate as much get the proteins purify how do you make it faster you will right. look out for technologies you're looking out for protocols which are already there people have worked on it so you don't have to reinvent the wheel mm-hmm. but also for your own specific uh, project needs uh, scientific needs you you try to tweak that protocol mm-hmm. so so innovative thinking how do you innovate in that space strategic thinking mm-hmm. of how you can uh, not have the negative results and make it more productive for yourself is something i think a phd teaches a person right coming failures and then the first one that i pointed out patience, patience yeah yeah <laughs> so yeah. i think uh, phd students are very well placed after those 4 uh, 5 years of uh, coming out of that uh, uh, you know it's um, 
it's a chamber that they come out of yeah uh, it, as very different individuals i think they are positioned very well in in, in these aspects right. uh, which kind of uh, uh, stands them in good speed uh, stead for uh, future work right so i think those are all the questions i had oh i remember that you also work as an editor for a lot of uh, journals in india and um, that's how we met right like i was uh, doing an article <laughs> that you commissioned so um what how do you think the indian psychom and outreach space is like in terms of scientific magazines or um writing for the public science writing for the public what do you think of that industry currently yeah again that is something that is uh, coming up in a big way and i would i would say that uh, it draws a lot from what is happening around us right then uh, so let me just back uh, kind of take the the conversation from where we have been and take it to science communication mm. rather than dealing with it as a stand alone so mm. when the government says come up with more startups mm. the government say mandates uh, or uh, the country mandates let me say even from looking at the needs of the people not just what the government is mandating mm. uh take things faster to the ground mm. make it uh, more translational so when you're saying all this it is not just the scientist who's being mandated to do that right mm. Mm. because uh, scientists have some course uh, set of expertise may or may not even want to uh, be able to uh, you know want to take it further the, beyond the lab hmm. he or she may want partnerships to be uh, to take the technology by means of either technology transfer some who are enterprising might want to start their own startups like what we see you hmm. know a lot of the academic institutes are are in, have a professor at the core of a startup hmm. right hmm. so drawing from that it is very difficult to be able to do that if what you have done is read and understood only by the people of your field mm. right you because they are the people who are reading the scientific journals mm. and uh, those scientific journals if you see the wordings of those it a lay person cannot even no. get there you know no a biologist <laughs> cannot understand a physicist they all have their own language <laughs> exactly so when you see scientific journals or peer reviewed journals they are very technical mm. right they are very technically framed and that is for a very niche audience mm. for a very niche community which understands as is working on on these particular aspects but as um, a person from outside the field where it you know becomes important when you're asking those innovations or those uh, outcomes scientific outcomes to be taken outside of the lab mm. you need a person from outside the domain to be able to read and understand what you have done to say that okay hey this is what you've done mm. uh you're a you're a scientist you're a inorganic chemist i'm a electric i'm an electrical engineer and i see that if i do this i can make a electrical circuit which can be taken to a point of care mm. you know i'm just giving a very random example right. but that kind of solution or that kind of an uh, in interface before that uh, solution can become mm. uh, a point of care treatment or point of care uh, diagnostics mm. requires a person from outside the field to be looking at it and be able to understand and that is where the science communication comes in true which takes that information from a technical information demystifies it mm. talks about it in a very simple language so that and a non technical language 
so a person from outside the uh, the field reads it can understand it mm. and see how it can be taken yes right so that is where the science communication also started building up as a as a result of all the changes that have been coming up both in the scientific aspects where more scientists are being mandated to take their inventions on ground beyond publications and patents mm. on the other side uh, the you know initiatives being rolled out uh, for the startup ecosystem to you know start up and stand up mm. uh, you know combining all that requires huge communication skills there because there is a communication that gap mm. that has been identified which prevents from the academia to the ground True. you know so that communication gap is a big thing more than technological gap or skill gap mm. uh, which hinders these things to be taken to ground mm. so that is why communication became a big thing and if uh, as you know sahana you you also writing uh, for uh, you know other uh, publication houses and platforms mm. you know that it it is being rolled out in a big manner the change you would have seen already in the past 3 to 4 years yeah uh, so the ecosystem i would say has pushed the need for better science communication hmm. and uh, that is the reason that you see it, uh, you know the dst or the vigyan prasar forming a separate unit just for communication hmm. their national level institutes which uh, have a communication cell so they want the people from the from their own institute to be able to put it out in hmm. a very layman language hmm. for it to be understood but many institutes and universities do not have that mm. uh, you know uh, that uh, leverage of having a communication cell in that case it becomes important for a scientific uh, writer to be able to read different papers um, from the tech uh, and understand the technical aspects of it right. and put it down in a layman's language now coming to the challenges of it uh, one is science writers uh, people who are engaged in the work hmm. other people to be able to talk about right hmm. because it is not just the scientific uh, work hmm. it is the vision behind that yes. work that is to be conveyed hmm. if you just talking very technical if you talking about just the problem and how it was solved uh, people fail to see where it is going hmm. so you uh, for a writer it, it is important to understand the mandate or the vision behind the work that is being done and scientific writers aside i think the best people to talk about it are other people who've done the work themselves hmm. because they can convince uh, the you know they are the best people to talk about the vision right behind it hmm. so i think one people from the scientific uh, arena should should be more forthcoming in writing for public as well then hmm. not rely on a community uh, on a communication cell hmm. which as it does not exist in many institutes so for people from the scientific or the clinical side to write articles for general consumption right for general read is very important mm. and which is currently lacking right also um uh, people uh, i think there is also a need to formalize many aspects but till for you know you can um, Um, mandate people to write about their own work mm-hmm. uh, is yes. which is going to be to take time because in, in in between writing peer reviewed publications and presentations and running their own lab yeah. this the backbeat so you yeah. cannot rely on on this model mm. for science writing so we need more 
people who are very you know good in understanding the technical aspects of the writing and writing uh, have the adequate writing skill hmm. to be able to do it well convincingly right. and convey the vision in a more promising manner hmm. for general reading hmm. is also very important we have a lot of people who are interested i think they they need that kind of mentorship support right where they can be able to take from technical to a totally non technical uh, writing right so i think english kind of formal structure there to be able to enable more young people to right. do that like phd students uh, who are who find the time because they are used to working 24 hours they they find the time to be able to do that <coughs> sorry mm. also i think there's a lot of uh, scope and now i'm taking a totally different turn there are uh, you know there are a lot of uh, phd's on a break uh, these could be you know contemplating what to do next for women you know having starting a family getting married is a time that that breaks generally comes in <coughs> there is um, a lot of scope of engaging uh, such people to mm. have the technical knowledge and the skills yeah to do it i think so if you structure programs where these people can be onboarded faster i think uh, that will be great uh, for <coughs> communication okay yeah right uh, so yeah i think those are all the questions thank you for your time and i had a great time My chatting pleasure. with you that is a wrap on this episode I hope this talk gave you a perspective on how your PhD education is not just a degree but an education in uh how you think how you approach problems how you strategize and a lot more which are useful transferable skills which can be used in any job that you have after your PhD I had this chat with Swati on a Sunday morning in my lab and as soon as the I, the talk was over i was so uh, enthusiastic that i made a whole bunch of uh, lists about the skills that i could use later and i also spent the rest of the day reading her columns which are truly truly engaging and interesting if you want to be an entrepreneur i highly recommend them she talks about the indian startup scene and what kind of technology is the future for entrepreneurship uh, do check them out on medium.com she's truly inspiring she also has a ted talk which i highly recommend um you can also visit the 1m1b project at www.activate1m1b.org for more information on what kind of projects they do and how you can engage with it all links will be in the show notes so if you like this episode please subscribe to the stem speak podcast on itunes or castbox or spotify You can also check out our previous episode on earthquake engineering which I think was also super interesting. Uh we have had a reboot so specifically look for the stem speak podcast with the icon of a DNA double helix inside a computer. Um the previous podcast I think has stopped update updating we don't have any more new episodes on it. You can find more interesting stories on our new website www.stemspeak.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. you can drop us a message on either of these platforms uh so the stemspeak.org is basically a scicom project so we share some cool science facts celebrate the lives and works of remarkable scientists and basically have fun with scicom so tune into the stemspeak podcast every monday for a new take on the stem concepts that run our lives thank you for listening see you soon